0: Well, we are in Acts uh, chapter 2 this morning. Acts 2 is a wonderful reminder that God is a promise-keeping God. Last week in Acts 1, Jesus told the apostles to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promised Holy Spirit. Jesus said to them, you will receive my power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria until the end of the earth. And chapter 2 describes the fulfillment of that very promise on the day of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit descends on the apostles and empowers them for gospel ministry. The events of Acts 2, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the church, is one of the most important events in all of human history. I would say creation is probably number one. makes sense. Creation is kind of a big deal. That's why we're here today, right? Psalm 19 and Romans uh, 1 say that creation points people to God. It's in creation where we see God's handiwork, His power, His majesty. Then the second most significant moment in redemptive history would be the death and resurrection of Jesus. At the cross, Jesus made it possible for man to be reconciled with God. The second Adam restored what had been damaged by the first Adam. That after these two monumental events, this day at Pentecost is arguably the third most significant event in redemptive history. So let's pray together, and then we're going to walk through Acts chapter 2. Uh, Father, I pray as we read this passage that, uh, that I would preach a true uh, and right gospel, oh, Lord. So I pray that uh, you'd give us ears to hear from you, that uh, uh that Um, That our hearts would be cut, that we would be uh, convicted of sin, that you would lead us into righteousness. So give us ears to hear from you this morning, and I pray this in Christ's name, amen. So starting in verse 1, Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, let's pause there. So the day of Pentecost, it's one of three major feasts in Israel's annual calendar. The other two feasts are Passover and the Feast of Booths. The name Pentecost comes from the fact that it is celebrated on the 50th day. So think of Penta, Pentecost, 50th day after Passover. So this is why Pentecost is called the, the Feast of Weeks because it happened seven weeks after Pentecost. Uh, this is one of the feasts where pilgrims, they would return to Jerusalem to appear before the Lord with gifts and offerings. Uh, this feast was primarily it was a, it was a harvest festival. It celebrated the end of the barley harvest and the beginning of the wheat harvest. Now, I don't know if you can see this, but, but God's doing something here. Uh, he, he's, he's setting the deck up with these pilgrims coming back to Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit getting ready to come. Um, you remember at, at Acts, Acts begins with Jesus hanging out with the disciples. The disciples ask Jesus if he's going to restore Israel. So they're thinking about Israel, this kingdom, this power. Rome, you know, Rome, Rome is now um, in rule over Israel. So they're thinking, Israel, are you going to restore Israel? And Jesus is like, well, not exactly. He, he's told them that he's establishing a kingdom where the first will be last, the last will be first. They're going to be witnesses of this kind of kingdom, and this kingdom would expand to the ends of the earth. It wasn't just... An Israel thing. Well, expanding this kingdom to the ends of the earth, it seems like that's a pretty big task. So they'd probably want to get started as soon as they could. But Jesus says he wants them to wait in the city of Jerusalem until the promise from the Father comes. And then God sends this promised Holy Spirit during a festival, Pentecost, which requires people from all over the world to come to Jerusalem. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. God is all wise. Can you see this brilliant plan unfolding? God wants his gospel message to spread out all over the world. Thousands and thousands of Jewish pilgrims are now coming to Jerusalem from all over the world. So he wants the message to go out, and it just so happens that all these people are coming in. God is going to use these pilgrims to be these witnesses that he talks about in Acts chapter 1. So in verse 1, we. Read where it is Pentecost, and then starting in verse 2, Luke tells us that this mighty rushing wind comes through along with divided tongues as a fire. So here, Luke is tapping into Old Testament themes, themes like God's presence along with themes of wind and fire. If you think back from the very beginning in the garden, God desired to be near man. God walked with man. And though Adam and Eve damaged that relationship, God's desire still remained the same. He wanted to be near man. Several years later, when God spoke to Moses, God's presence was what? It was in a fire. During the Exodus, God dwelt among his people, Israel. His presence was seen by cloud during the day and by fire at night. Then the completion of um, Solomon's temple, the presence of God dwelt in the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. There are a number of Old Testament passages where God's presence is shown through wind and fire. If you just let your brain just think through the Old Testament, some of you might be thinking of Elijah. Remember the story of Elijah? He calls down fire from heaven. And what do we see here in Acts chapter 2? Fire coming down from heaven. Or maybe you're thinking about Ezekiel and the dry bones. You'll see these themes all throughout the Old Testament. Then you think about Jesus. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He comes to dwell or tabernacle with us. God once again is dwelling near men. Then Jesus tells his disciples that it would be for their advantage if he would leave so that the Holy Spirit could come. Then the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, and now. God's presence dwells inside man, essentially becoming a new temple. So all these Jews are returning to the temple to be in God's presence. The Holy Spirit comes, and then all these Jews leave Jerusalem as the temple of God. In fact, if you just look at the book of Acts, you kind of see this contrast between these two temples. You have Herod's temple And it's religious leaders versus the church, who is the spiritual temple. So the physical temple was a way for heaven to come down to earth. People would gather. They'd come to Jerusalem to be near God. But now we literally see heaven coming down to earth. But instead of God dwelling in a building, he is now dwelling inside a body. So now let's go back to our passage. Thousands of Jews, some from far away, are gathering in Jerusalem to celebrate this harvest. The residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking Said they are filled with new wine. So some have suggested that this is the undoing of the Tower of Babel. Do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? At Babel, the people did not want to spread out and fill the land, and so God made them speak in a different tongue. Now those who are spread out are coming to one place and hearing different tongues as their own, hearing one tongue. In some ways, I think this could be a picture of heaven for us. I don't think we're going to need translators in heaven. So what language does that mean we're going to speak? Well, everyone knows that we'll all be speaking English when we get to heaven, right? (laughs) Probably even Old English. Uh, In the Old Testament, God's people spoke Hebrew. So could we all speak Hebrew in heaven? I guess possibly. But my personal opinion, so take take that for what it's worth, is that we'll probably just speak the same language that we already currently know and speak. And since we'll all be glorified, we'll have glorified minds and we'll just understand all languages just like they do here in Acts chapter 2. That's my personal opinion. So thousands are gathered and they're hearing people speak who probably shouldn't be multilingual. They ask, are these not all Galileans? It's like when someone you know from the media Hollywood will say, Aren't they from West Virginia? You know, how how are they able to do this? Galileans weren't very educated, and yet God was using these uneducated Galileans to bewilder the nations, the enlightened people. Verse 12 says that they were all amazed and perplexed, but did you notice that others mocked? And that is typically how it's always been. When God shows up in credible ways, there are some who are amazed, but others mock. This reminds me of the story of Lazarus in John's Gospel. Lazarus was dead for four days, and while the funeral was still going on, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and the Bible says that many Jews believed, which makes perfect sense. A man who had been dead for four days just raised from the dead. You would think that would lead people to God. But then the Bible says that some left and told the Pharisees what Jesus had done. They went and snitched on Jesus. Everyone saw the same event, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, but they responded to the event differently. The same is true at Pentecost. Everyone saw the same things going on. Some believed, but others mocked, thinking they were all drunk. So then Peter begins this incredible sermon, a sermon that has seen unprecedented results. Peter also gives a great example of what preaching should look like. So I'm taking notes here um, from this passage. He simply quotes the biblical text, explains it, applies it, and calls for a response. He keeps his focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let's listen to Peter as he stands and delivers God's word starting in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, that would be nine AM. But this is what uttered through the prophet Joel. And as in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Peter will go on, he quotes three different Old Testament passages to show that Jesus is this fulfillment of this Old Testament Messiah. This first passage that we just read comes from the book of Joel. Peter explains that the prophet Joel predicted this bewildering event of Pentecost, that the apostles are simply fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Joel foretells about the day in which every believer Would be a prophet in some sense. This miraculous sign would be seen with the pouring out of the spirit in these last days. The last days, that's a phrase that was a way of speaking about this new covenant, this new creation. The new covenant would tear down things like race and gender divisions, that God would pour out his spirit even on servants. Now, what kind of God would elevate a servant? Probably the kind of God who humbled himself to become a servant and would be the kind of God uh, who would exalt a servant. This kingdom would truly be an upside-down kingdom. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. Then Peter moves from a prophecy of Joel to preaching about King David in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by, uh, by mist, as yourselves know, that... Um, Set on one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, But he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter quotes two psalms here Psalm 16, Psalm 110. And Peter points out that this passage could have not been fulfilled by the historical David because he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. But rather, David served as a prophet, someone that was speaking about one of his descendants. Peter even says that David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, that's credible that Peter would make that connection from the Old Testament, that he would say that David saw, he spoke about the resurrection of Jesus. That's incredible. So Peter's using the Old Testament because at this time there is no New Testament. He's using the Old Testament to show these thousands of Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Notice that Peter doesn't use any PowerPoint, no cool illustrations, no gimmicks, no giveaways, and so far there isn't even an altar call. And look at how the people respond in verse 37 to Peter's sermon. In verse 37... It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what does God use to cut to their heart? He just uses the scriptures. In fact, Old Testament scriptures at that. What's incredible about this is is think about how their day began. Remember earlier in the day, there's this mighty rushing wind. They're all gathered for this festival. There's a mighty rushing wind. They're, They're coming through the city. Fire comes down from heaven. People were speaking, and all these people could understand them in their own language. You would think these miraculous signs would be what God uses to lead people to repentance. But that's not what God used to cut people to their heart. This is the power of the word of God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 and 13 claims that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God takes a few passages from from the Old Testament to show these Jews that Jesus is this coming Messiah. And by the end of the sermon, this congregation They're asking, what shall we do? And being cut to the heart means that you have this weight of conviction. That you feel guilt of your own personal sin. Have you ever been cut to the heart? You just felt the weight of your sin? Peter's answer for their guilt is quite simple. Look how simple God made it to come to him. Have you ever noticed this? How simple God makes it to come to him. What's Peter's answer? He says, repent. Repent means to turn away from a lifestyle that you're currently living. Repent is not a synonym for confessing. Now, repenting is is at least a confession, but it's more than a confession. It's about a life change. Feeling sad about the consequences of sin is not sufficient. In order to have a relationship with God, it simply starts with repenting. Not do this many good deeds or pray for this many hours of the day or give X amount of money to the church. Just repent. Sin demands repentance because sin is a violation of God's commandments. So we must repent for our sin and We all have sinned. Second, alongside of repentance, Peter calls the crowd to be baptized. Baptism is an essential part of Christian discipleship and represents our forgiveness of sins. But when you read this, I think there's a question that kind of jumps out at us from this passage Is baptism necessary for salvation? They ask, you know, brothers, what what shall we do? You know, they're cut to their heart. What shall we do? Peter responds, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The word and can make this passage appear to mean that you need to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the way it just simply reads. So do we need to be baptized to be saved? When you read the entirety of the New Testament, it clearly presents baptism as a visual picture of salvation, meaning the one who is immersed in the waters of baptism is the one who has been regenerated. So baptism is not a prerequisite for salvation. Uh, the obvious example of this is a thief on the cross. You, you remember this guy? Um, Jesus did not say, hey, you need to first get down off the cross and be baptized, and then you will be with me in paradise. Um, Plus, if baptism saves you, then you get into this idea of salvation by works. And we're not saved by works, but by grace. Your physical baptism is a picture of your spiritual death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism does not regenerate you. So... We do not need to be baptized to be saved, but if we are saved, then we will get baptized. And I think that's the picture here. It's just for Peter, it just makes sense. That's the next step for you. If you are saved, then you will you will want and get baptized. So Peter then tells the crowd the incredibly good news about God's kingdom. He says in verse 39, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all. Who are far off. Everyone, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So, receiving the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was not this like event that just came and happened and was gone. It it, it didn't end. The Holy Spirit is still being given to those who repent to this very day. The reference to those who are far off simply refers to all of us us Gentiles, those who are not Jews, Peter has the audacity to say that salvation is being offered even to the pagans. Everyone, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now that's a pretty interesting phrase. I I think this is why God calls us to be witnesses of Christ, and he never calls us to lead anyone to Christ. Now I know we use that phrase. I used it earlier when when I was you know, giving the baby dedication that we lead people to Christ. But that's really not what's going on here um, in this sense here. Um, you know, Sometimes we'll say, you know, I led so-and-so to Christ. And I know what we mean when we say that. But we aren't leading anyone to Christ. The Lord, our God, calls individuals to himself and he does this by using your witness. So when you're witnessing, God is using that Witness to bring people to himself. This is why the apostle Paul says, How then are they uh call on him in whom they have not believed, and how are they to, to believe in him in whom they have never heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? We have to speak. That, that's what it means to be a witness. And so as we witness to others, God is working, his Holy Spirit is drawing men, women. Boys and girls to himself. So we witness, God does the leading. Then in verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls. Absolutely remarkable. Remember that Pentecost was a feast of what? It was a feast of the harvest. At the end of Peter's sermon, 3,000 people repent and make Jesus their Lord, making this the true harvest of all Pentecost. This is incredible. Now, many of these Jews remain in Jerusalem, but I'm guessing some of them went back to their own people, and guess what would probably be the first thing that they would do when they get back? They would witness. They would share about what happened in Jerusalem that day. These pilgrims became faithful witnesses of Jesus. Jesus' plan for people to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, it's now unfolding through Pentecost. But many stayed in Jerusalem, and in verse 42, we begin to see the church in Jerusalem become established, and they established some core principles for what it looks like For when we gather together... So let's look down at verse 42. And they devoted themselves uh, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's pretty amazing to think that for over 2,000 years a faithful Christian gathering looks pretty much the same. Um, you have these four elements. You see here that, that, that there this is this devotion. I love the word devoted here. Devotion shows that they wanted to be there, that they are committed to, to each other. And what are they devoted to? They're devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. The teaching is, is it's one that's centered on the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's it's the exposition of God's word. It's not a a time of self-help or how-tos. Then this fellowship mentioned here, it's more than just some church dinner with way too many casseroles uh, in the basement of a church building or in the family life center. Just because you're meeting in something called the Fellowship Hall doesn't mean that true fellowship is actually happening. I could use the classic um, youth group illustration of what true biblical fellowship means. It's like taking a piece of duct tape. Do I have any uh, willing um, um, people, volunteers this morning who uh, would like for me to put a piece of duct tape on your arm? I put duct tape on your arm, and I rip that piece of duct tape off your arm, and what's on the backside of that tape? You are. Your your hair, your skin, maybe even some blood. So, biblical fellowship means that when we are together, when we part ways, we take a piece of each other with us. That's what biblical fellowship means. So, fellowship in the church is based upon the common love that believers have for one another in the Lord. It's not just eating together. Um, this is why like, I encourage you guys. Like, when you, there, there's a phrase that we, that, that we use occasionally. We should probably use it more. C- come early, stay late. We want we, you coming not at 10 o'clock. If you think church is just at 10, if that's kind of in your mind, then you could fall into the trap that church is an event. It's an event that starts at 10. We, do, we don't want it to be an event. Come early. Um, some of you figured that out. That's how you get a good spot in the, in, in the parking lot. If you don't come early, you're not parking anywhere close. Um, but come early. Start talking with people. Hey, how was your week? You know, follow up with the things you asked them about last week. You know, how, how's that prayer request? You know, what's, what's, what's going on? What did the doctor say this week? Come early. Stay late. This is why we have snacks afterwards downstairs in the fellowship hall. We want you to go downstairs. We don't want you to just bust out the door because the service is over. That's an event. This is not an event. This is this is a gathering of God's people. So we gather together. And we want to encourage you to, to come downstairs or, or hang out in here. Just talk. Don't be, don't be forced to, to rush off. Um, when, when you read like um, healthy church books, like what is a healthy church, uh, they will all talk about a sign of a healthy church is when the lights are on, the door's not locked, 10 minutes after the benediction. I've been a part of those churches. You have the benediction, pastor's at the back door shaking hands, and soon as uh, you know, soon as it's benediction, you just start exit, exit, exit. Ten minutes after benediction, lights are out, doors are locked, people are gone. Like I, I love that you know, it's an hour, hour and a half, time after the benediction, people are just kind of hanging out in here, talking downstairs, talking. You have two or three goodbyes where you say goodbye here, then you say goodbye up here, and you have goodbye by the door. That that's fellowship. It doesn't end here, though. It, it goes into your homes. See, Christians have a mutual love, accountability, and affection for one another that they do not have with those outside the church. You know, I, I'm closer with most of you more than I am with most of my extended family, and it's simply because my extended family just doesn't—they just don't understand the things of Christ. And then Luke mentions this breaking of the bread. Scholars really don't know what this fully means. Um, Does this mean the church should be sharing a meal together when they meet, breaking of bread? Or does this refer to the Lord's Supper? Uh, This phrase is also used just a few verses down in verse 46. In verse 46, this seems more like they're having a meal together. talks about food. But in Acts 20, the same phrase is used and obviously refers there to the Lord's Supper. So does this refer to a meal or to the Lord's Supper? Or does it refer to both? Could the Lord's Supper be more than just grabbing a broken piece of bread and a little cup with juice in it? Could the Lord's Supper be more of a meal? Possibly. Most believe this phrase refers to the Lord's Supper, which is why far more churches practice the Lord's Supper on Sundays rather than having a church dinner every Sunday. And then this last element that we see here is prayer. This shows us that prayer isn't just some personal practice, something that we do at home, but it's a corporate thing that we do together. So these were the fourfold elements that the early church devoted themselves to. But, but I wonder, what would be the fourfold elements that the church in the West devotes herself to today? Just thinking about it, what, what would be, what's the fourfold elements that would describe the church today. Maybe they devoted themselves to marketing, music, relevance, and money. Or maybe they devoted themselves to being judgmental, gossips, legalism, and materialism. See, I pray that HCC, that we are known for being a church that's okay with being old fashioned. You know, that we're still doing these ancient practices. It's okay that maybe we're not very relevant, cool, and hip, that we are a church that will stay devoted to God's word, to fellowship, to breaking of the bread and prayer. If any church is going to be an authentic church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it will include all four of these elements in some way. If any of these elements are missing, they're going to be critical problems with the church's health. The early church was marked by a love for God and a love for each other, and they found favor with all people. May we devote ourselves to these ancient practices and see the Lord give us the same favor in this city as we are faithful witnesses of his gospel. Let's pray together as the band comes back up. Lord Jesus, I I come just praying that we would be a church that's faithful, that we are devoted not to how uh, you know some people think that you know th- this would be a better idea to uh, a better way to do church, but I pray that we would just just keep looking at the Bible, this ancient text, and keep trying uh, to do things the way you tell us to do things. Uh, that, that that we don't have our eyes looking around other churches that are maybe maybe growing quicker and faster than we are, but um, but maybe they're not being built on solid ground. So may, may we be built on the foundation of Christ, the solid rock. So when I pray that we would be this kind of church, that we, would, um, that we would love each other, that we want to be around each other. And, we'll, and Lord, our love for you and our love for each other would compel us to go out and be faithful witnesses of, of the good news of the gospel. So help us this week to be faithful um, that we would fellowship with each other, that our fellowship wouldn't end at the benediction this morning, that we would keep uh, just um, being near to each other, encouraging each other as the day is drawing near. And Lord, we wait for your return. So help us to be faithful until that day comes. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. May he help us be faithful to you this week. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Amen.